So glad uh, to be uh, in the Psalms for one more week uh, together. We're, we're going back to Psalm 12. Max, uh, Lord willing, we'll pick back up uh, with Daniel uh, next week. Uh, so let me pray for us once more as we get into this. Lord, thanks so much uh, for this time. We're grateful for your word. Uh, we're grateful for the Psalms and grateful to have this time together. Um, what a, a wonderful time we've had uh, singing and going to you in prayer and, and just being together. We're so thankful. And we pray now that you would help me, help all of us to see uh, your character, to see your goodness, uh, to see the great hope that we have uh, in Christ as we look at your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It seems like I've had more uh, conversations lately uh, about movies uh, at work and, and with neighbors and things like that uh, because it, it seems a little bit like, you know, after COVID and after years of kind of downturn in movies that, that movies themselves are, are coming back a little bit. Uh, of course, uh, this past summer will long be remembered in, in movie circles for the epic uh, dual release of the blockbusters Barbie and Oppenheimer. <laughs> now, I will admit I have not seen either of these movies. Don't worry, I'm not about to launch into... <laughs> good, <laughs> into a cultural analysis of, the, of either of these movies. But I do think it, it's, it's interesting, and many people have pointed this out, you probably heard it said, that these two films are extremely different, and yet uh, both of them are, uh, became wildly popular at the same time. A New York Times article said this uh, about the phenomenon, it said that Oppenheimer helped fuel Barbie and vice versa with their simultaneous release, nicknamed Barbenheimer, and movie fans captivated by their wild incongruity. Oppenheimer, which cost Universal Pictures at least $100 million to make, not including a megawatt marketing campaign, is a three-hour period drama about Robert Oppenheimer, the man known as the father of the atomic bomb. About 200,000 people purchased tickets to see Barbie and Oppenheimer as a double feature. Anyone do that in here? Go as a double feature? No? Okay. <laughs> you already don't want to admit it. So I think there's a lot that we can learn there, and, and I think these two movies remind us uh, that people are drawn uh, to very different uh, kinds of stories, uh, and I think this is because multiple stories kind of play out in, in all of our lives, and we inhabit those in different ways uh, at different times, and, and different stories end up resonating with us in different ways. Uh, for example, there are many stories where a plot is driven by, by a dramatic change in circumstances. Uh, this is a, a classic feature, obviously, of many Hollywood uh, stories where, where somebody is, is doing very poorly uh, at the beginning of the movie, but, but then by the end of the movie, uh, things, things are going much better for them. They're, they're kind of, you know, at the top. Uh, some of you have heard me insist, and I will continue to insist this, the 2015 live-action version of Cinderella, actually an excellent movie, one of my favorites. I will not rehash the plot of Cinderella. You know it. That Cinderella is very much about a dramatic change in circumstances for the main Character. Another classic example that I'm legally bound to mention in Philadelphia is Rocky. I just watched again last month. I'll watch it again tomorrow if you want to come over. Rags the riches, nobody to somebody, right? But of course, there are many other types of stories where the circumstances don't actually change uh, that much at all, but, that, but other things change along the way. And, and sometimes those are, are really the best types of stories because you have to look a little harder. And when you see what has changed, uh, you can really appreciate it. 
So we are dipping back into the Psalms uh, one more time. I don't want to correct, overcorrect Tim from the announcements, but it is technically still summer for five more days. It's not fall quite yet. <laughs> and there are certainly many different types of Psalms. And in some of the Psalms, there, there are wonderful uh, poetic expressions of, of very much changed circumstances. Uh, Psalm 18 uh, is an example where this happens. The psalm begins with, with a story of distress and ends with God giving the psalmist victory and with the psalmist proclaiming praise to God as a result. There's dynamic change in the course of one psalm. And then there's other psalms, like our psalm today, Psalm 12, and they're different. Psalm 12 also starts with a story of distress, but if we look at it, there, there really is no dramatic change in circumstances. However, there is a change and it's a change that, that as we see it and as we look at it, helps us to see more of what it means to know and follow God, especially in the midst of difficult seasons. In fact, Psalm 12 uh, is char- categorized as a lament psalm, which, which is the most prevalent type of psalm. More than 60 of the 150 psalms are labeled as lament psalms, giving expression to the very real struggles that we go through in this life. And Psalm 12 specifically is written by David, a man who was the king of Israel, a man who experienced great highs and also terrible lows. So we are going to follow along uh, today with David and his lament uh, in three parts. In verses 1 to 4, we'll see what was wrong. Uh, In verses 5 to 6, we'll see how God responds. And in verses 7 to 8, we will consider what it is that God's response changes. Along the way, we'll we'll, we'll try to consider not only how this psalm encourages us, but how it can shape how we think of ourselves, even as a church and a community of people brought together by God to serve and honor Him. So we'll start with verses 1 to 4, which I'll read again. It says, Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue, we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? So in these verses, we begin to hear what the problem is, what is wrong. But even we consider this, we should look and see how David is framing his description of what he is enduring. He's framing it very much as a prayer. He starts with save Oh, Lord, even before he discusses what is wrong, he is clear that he, he is bringing these problems, these circumstances to the Lord. And, and that's really a helpful way for us to think through this psalm. As we hear these problems described, even as we consider maybe our own situation, to just remember that it's good for us to bring these things to the Lord. And that's what David is doing. Like so many other psalms we we see in this psalm, someone who is in trouble and and they're pouring their heart out to God. As we said earlier, David is offering a lament. And one author described a lament as a prayer of pain that leads to trust. And this is the journey that we're embarking on with David in Psalm 12. And so what is it that David is lamenting? We see in verses 1 to 2. First of all, David very much feels alone. He says that the godly one is gone, the faithful have vanished. And this is a theme that that we see quite often uh, in the Bible, right? We think of Noah when he was building the ark. Everyone is sneering at him and laughing at him. We think of Elijah, who was a prophet 
in the days of Israel, and he felt extremely alone as seemingly everyone around him went a different way. And this is not just a theme, of course, in the Bible. It's often a theme in our lives, and many of you know how hard this is. You've been in situations where you know what the right thing is. You want to do the right thing, but, but there's no one around you, it seems, that, that shares your conviction. You, you can very much experience this maybe as a student uh, with your classmates and friends. You can experience this certainly as an employee at a company. You can even experience this in the midst of a family. And when this happens, this is a lonely and hard feeling. And so as you hear Psalm 12, you're invited to step into this journey with David and see him go from this loneliness and pain to trust. The pain that David is experiencing is laid out more fully in verses 2 to 4, and his pain and his loneliness is very much centered, we see, on the speech of others. He says that everyone's lying to their neighbors, that people are speaking with flattering lips. They're making great boasts. You know, it's interesting that David is not complaining about any actual, like, physical harm done to him here. He's simply complaining about words. And there's a few ways we can, we can go with this. It can be tempting at times uh, to minimize words, right? To say, well, well you know, those are just words. That, that, that's how people talk. What, what's important is what people actually do. And there, there is some truth to that, right? But it's a half-truth. Because the Bible is very clear, and we read it earlier in James 3, both our words and our actions matter. You know, you might have heard apologies like this. You may have been tempted to apologize uh, by saying something like, you know, the words that I said, they don't really represent who I actually, who I really am. That would have been a lot harder to swallow in the ancient world. In David's day, this was uh, better understood, that a person's words were much more closely tied to their character. And as one scholar points out, spoken words were thought to be effective right? That words, in a sense, accomplished what they said, and so words were a big deal, and still are. And even deeper than this, God made us as speaking beings, and our speech is a very important part of who we are as humans created to bear his image in the world. This gift of speaking, this gift of communicating, is one of the most precious gifts that he gives us. Now, I mentioned earlier the movie Rocky. Like I said, we watched it last month as a family again. And one of the toughest scenes in the movie, I always forget about it, but it's a scene that takes place on Thanksgiving. Do you remember this, if you've seen it? I, I can spoil this, right? Yeah, it's, it came out 50 years ago. One of the characters, Adrian, has prepared a Thanksgiving meal. There's a turkey in the oven. And here comes her brother, Paulie, who is perpetually angry and drinking. Very sad character. And he comes into the kitchen, he's yelling, he pulls the turkey out of the oven, opens the window, throws it out on the street, and Adrian just collapses, right, with, with sadness. Her life is already hard, her life is difficult, and now her brother has ruined this great Thanksgiving meal. The Thanksgiving meal, maybe the most anticipated meal of the year, has been ruined. And it, it's a powerful scene, right, because all of us know how precious and special that Thanksgiving meal is. Can you imagine how, how it would go if you did this at your next Thanksgiving gathering? It would be a tremendous waste and also a tremendous insult to the one who prepared the meal as a gift to you. And that's a small picture of what it looks like when we misuse our speech because it is one of God's best 
gifts to us. And it's so beautiful when we use it well, so distressing when we don't. And that's why David describes those who are speaking in this way as having a double heart, that their speech is, is out of alignment with who they truly are. They're saying one thing, but, but their speech is not meant to convey truth. It's meant to manipulate. It's meant to flatter, David says, a word that's stated twice in these few verses. And we know this, that flattery is one of the best ways to manipulate other people. <laughs> that word here, flattery, has the sense of making smooth. As one person pointed out, that, that's what we mean when we talk about somebody being a smooth talker, right? That's, that's not a good thing when we say that. There's such a big difference between what we think of as encouragement and flattery, on the other hand. Encouragement is very much meant to build up the hearer, while flattery is meant to manipulate the hearer to do what we want them to do. To be frank, it's almost a way for us to, to, to play God, to get our own way. And it's very tempting, I think, for us to do two things. Number one, uh, to employ flattery because we like to get our way. And number two, to believe flattery because we like to be told that we are the good ones and that the problems are with others and, and not with us. We love stories where we are the heroes. And I think that number two, believing flattery, that's a great temptation, a great danger for us in our time and place, right? There are so many voices out there for us to listen to, and many of those voices will try to flatter you. I would say keep an eye on this, especially as we head into this next big election season that we're probably, most of us are dreading. When you watch uh, the debates, when you see the commercials, notice how much flattery is employed. Notice how often you are told that, that you and your team are the good ones, and that the problems are all out there on the other team. If you watch shows on, on cable news with political commentary, if you spend time on social media, notice how often flattery is employed, how often you are told that the problems are not with you, not with your side, but with the other side, how often you are told that you and your team are the righteous ones. And that's a temptation, I think, even in the church. It's tempting to develop an identity as a church, especially when the culture begins to feel hostile, that the problems are, are, are primarily out there and not in here, and to speak, speak and to think in a way that, that is kind of flattering to ourselves, right? That we're the ones holding on to the truth, that we're the faithful remnant. And that can feel good for a while, but it does not produce the kind of humility and eventually the kind of people that God is calling us to be. We want to be free from this type of flattery, to see it for what it is, and David makes this clear as he calls for those who use flattery in this way to be judged. And strong words here. The Lord would cut them off. Notice that David himself is not taking vengeance on his enemies, but he is asking God to show his righteousness, to defend and care for his people, which is completely appropriate and good for him to do. And to characterize those who he needs deliverance from, he, he quotes them. He, he says that this is what they say, with our tongues we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? The way that his opponents are saying this, they're meaning it kind of as a rhetorical question because in their eyes, nobody, nobody's master over them, but it's a question that maybe they shouldn't have asked because the true answer is different than the answer that they imagined. And we see that in verses 5 to 6. Say this, 
because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And so God responds, and this is actually the first time in the Psalms where God himself is actually said to answer a question. And interestingly, it's, it's an answer to, to an arrogant, non-serious question from those that oppose him. As happens so often in the Bible, the powerful people, right, are, are moving along, doing their thing, business as usual, thinking that nothing in the world can touch them, that their word is effective, that their word is the final word, and then God interjects and God reminds them. And he says, I see what is going on. And notice that God sees what is going on and he hears. He hears the needy. He hears their groans. He hears the ones that society forgets about. He hears the ones that don't have influence, that don't have the money, that don't have the power to make their own voice heard. God hears and he promises to act. He will give the poor and the needy the safety that they long for. And so God is showing with these words that he is different than those who are speaking arrogantly. It's now been almost 30 years uh, since I went to college. But I will say the 1990s were an interesting time to be in college for, for a lot of reasons. One reason was that the internet was very much in its infancy. Now, my social life may or may not have been as exciting as some of my classmates, but let's just say I had a good amount of time in those years to play around on the internet and uh, figure it out. <laughs> I even built my own website in the mid-90s, which at the time, I know now it's like, whatever. At the time, that was like a really big uh, accomplishment. And what's uh, fun but also awful is that I use the Wayback Machine on the internet, I can still see certain pages from that website. Kids, let this be a lesson that everything on the internet is permanent, <laughs> no matter what you think. Looking at my old website, it's pretty clear that it's awful. The pictures are terrible, the writing is terrible. One page is simply entitled, Good Link, Cool Links, with not one, but two, but eight exclamation points after the word links. They were really cool. It's, it's all bad. And perhaps what is most terrible is the design. Blue text on orange background, blue text on red background, black text on green background. So if you wanted to go on and find my site, and you wanted to read my half-baked opinions on the 1996 Sixers, good luck, because it's almost impossible, right? The contrast between the colors is, is brutal. It's so difficult to read. Contrast, helpful and important. And verse 6 puts an extremely important contrast on display. Verses 1 to 4 were very much about the misuse of words by David's enemies, but verse 6 shows the contrast, the goodness of God's words and of his speech. Verse 6 emphasizes the purity of God's word, not just stating that, that his words are pure, but, but painting a picture, showing like, like silver refined in a furnace seven times. And as many of you know, in the Bible, that number seven, that's not just a number, but it's used to, to emphasize perfection, completeness. It, it wouldn't be like better if, if, if we went back for eight or nine times of purification. The number seven shows us the perfection of God's word. And when we see this, this contrast, this comparison between God's word and the word of his opponents, we are comforted and we're also encouraged. 
we can know that the flattering and false words that surround us are not the final word. And we can know that no matter what is said, that, that our God who, who loves us, He is the one who is in charge and that His word triumphs over all the other words out there. One commentator said this, said, for those who experience the assault of evil speech, as David was dealing with in this psalm, the solution is not to be found in the return of evil speech to enemies, but in confidence in the word of God, which is firm and cannot be moved. This is a truth that has shaped the church throughout the ages, such an important truth for us to continue to live out now. This summer, I got to read the excellent uh, new biography of Martin Luther King Jr. by Jonathan Eig. Uh, there were many moments in this biography that, that stuck with me, uh, but one that, that really stays with me is Dr. King's response on the night that his house was bombed uh, during the days when he was leading the, the Montgomery bus boycott. And the thing was, some of you know the story, Dr. King was not at home, he was at a meeting at a church, but his wife Coretta uh, and his little baby Yoki were. They were both home, they both survived, uh, and Dr. King returned home, and a large crowd gathered uh, outside of his house. And in that moment, that crowd was ready to do just about probably whatever he told them to do. And so his words were so critical in this moment. So he went out on his front, front porch, and part of what he said is this. He said to the people, don't get panicky. Don't get your weapons. He who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. Remember, that is what God said. We are not advocating violence. We want to love our enemies. I want you to love our enemies. Be good to them, love them, and let them know that you love them. This is right after his house was bombed. In the midst of threats that included words and also, in this case, included violence, the people gathered that night received a humble response from the truth of God's word. See, when we're confident in the truth of God's word, we are free from trying to manipulate others with our words. We're free from succumbing to the flattery of those who want to manipulate us, and we are free to use our words as a means of reflecting God's word and God's character. The book of Ephesians was uh, which we read a few weeks ago here at church, was written to a group of churches that was struggling with unity across many lines. And one of the things that Paul, uh, who wrote the letter, says to them is this. In Ephesians 4.29, he says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And so this is, is how it goes. We see the goodness of God's word, which reflects the goodness of God's character. And as we see the beauty of who he is, the Holy Spirit works in us to make us more and more into those who reflect his character. And so in a church that sees the, 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 the privilege of reflecting God's character in this way, as we speak our words in a way that shows that our trust is in the Lord and in his goodness and in his justice, a church like that is a place that demonstrates the goodness of God. And because we know that God's words reflect God's character, we can live in a way that, that is calm and trusting in him because he promises to protect his people. And he's faithful to his promises. And so while this is true, it almost makes the last couple verses of this psalm a little bit surprising. Verses 7 and 8. So you, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. 
In verse 7, David continues to dwell on the promise of God and responds to the promise of God. God has said that he will protect the poor and needy, that he will place them in safety, that he will arise. And David affirms the truthfulness of what God has said, affirming that God will indeed do this and even applying the promises of God to himself, saying, you will guard us from this generation forever. Now, as many others have pointed out, it seems like verse 7 would be just a great place <laughs> to end this psalm. We're, we're, we very much, it seems, completed the journey from, from complaint to confidence. I remember when I was younger, uh, a lot of the toys that I had were made by that company, Fisher-Price, which I think they still make a lot of toys. One in particular that I remember is the Fisher-Price uh, record player. Did anyone else have a Fisher-Price record player? Come on. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I saw one recently on eBay for $50 if you need a gift idea. I mean, this thing was, was this, the late 70s in all its glory. It was, it was yellow, brown, and beige. Uh, it was awesome. I remember I had a bunch of albums that I would listen to, but I also remember that I wasn't always super careful with those albums, and they would get scratches, and they would skip. And I remember it was so frustrating to have a song like going along, and whoop, it would like skip back to the beginning uh, of the song. Well, verse 8 of Psalm 12 feels a little bit like one of those album skips. It feels like we're, we're driving in Psalm 12 to this triumphant conclusion but in many ways here, it feels like we're just skipping back to the beginning, to verses 1 to 4, because rather than talking about the victory of God, we're going back and talking about the, the constant presence of the wicked, the presence of those who are lying and flattering and acting arrogantly towards God and others. David says that they're still prowling about, and that even though God has spoken, the words of those who oppose him are still seemingly everywhere. But I think if we read and hear this psalm well, will recognize that the way that Psalm 12 ends is very much in line with our real-life experience. There are many times when we have heard God's word, when we have heard him speak. His words are good. His promises are good. We know his character is perfect, and yet it does not mean that our actual circumstances have actually changed all that much. And that's a tension that I think all of us feel in so many ways. <clears throat> and being a Christian does not take away this tension. In many ways, it simply heightens it. This is often referred to as living in the already, but not yet. That God has said and done so much already, but there's also a not yet. Things that we're still waiting and longing and hoping for. And this explains why our problems don't, don't magically go away when we follow Jesus. While we still suffer, even though God has promised to make all things new, while we why we still sin, even though God says he is making us new. Why we still experience re relational hurt and pain, sometimes even in the church, even though God says he has reconciled us together in Christ. Why we still feel lonely at times, like David said, even though God said he's made us part of a body of believers. Even why we still die and see others die even though God has given us life. Why the wicked often still seem to be in charge, even though God has said, that he will bring justice. This already not yet can be a hard place to live as we feel and experience these tensions. And, and yes, Psalm 12 tells us that God's word is completely pure. And Psalm 12 tells us that God will arise and care for his people. But it can sometimes happen that, that, that we begin to question whether or not God will really do what he has promised. I think as we fight that fight of belief, 
and of digging and clinging on to the truth and the hope of God's Word, there are two steps in Psalm 12 that are really important for us. The first step for us is to remember the character of God. We look back and we remember how God's Word has revealed God's character again and again. We said earlier, ancient people thought about speech not just as words, but actually, in a sense, as accomplishing what they said. And we see this in the Bible. In fact, we see this in the first chapter of the Bible. When God speaks and says, let there be light, what happens? There was light. When God speaks something, it's true, it happens. Now, sometimes God speaks and something happens right away. Sometimes something does not happen right away. And the best example of this comes just a couple chapters after Genesis 1. After Adam and Eve doubt God's words and doubt his character, and instead they listen to the flattering words of the serpent, and they eat the fruit that God told them not to, and God promises to send someone who will defeat the serpent and win the victory for God and his people. And then you can turn the page from Genesis 3 to Genesis 4, all the way through Genesis, all the way through Exodus, all the way through the Psalms, all the way through the Old Testament, and still what God had said would happen still hasn't happened. But God's promise to send a Savior was just as true and effective as his command to let there be light. And so after many years and many generations, Jesus, the Son of God, comes and experiences so much of what David describes here in Psalm 12. He experiences opposition as his own people refuse to believe him and become more and more intent on removing him. He experiences loneliness as even his closest friends forsake him and desert him when he is arrested and he's lied about and he's put on a cross to die. He cares for the poor. He cares for the needy in his life, valuing them when the powerful people did not. And he dies to save us, to offer us forgiveness for all the ways we've misused our words and all the ways we have failed to trust him and to offer us deliverance from all who would oppose God and his people. And in a surprising twist, the first words after the death of Jesus are spoken not by God and not by one of God's people, but spoken by a Roman soldier, one of those who had guarded Jesus, one of those who had led him to his death. And the words of this soldier are this, truly this was the Son of God. And these words from this Roman soldier, this person who, who symbolized the, the epitome of power as the world thinks of it, are a small foretaste of the day when everyone will have to humbly acknowledge that God's words are true and the day when the already meets the not yet and comes together and when we see all of God's good promises as completely and totally true. And there's another way that Psalm 12 helps us along the way to that day. Remember we go back to verse 1 and we remember that David had two problems. One problem was that the evil people were ruling the day. Second problem was he was lonely. And so there are two needs in those first few verses. The need for God to rise up, yes, but also implicit in that, the need for a community of people that would look to God together. And friends, this is where so much of our opportunity lies. We live in a very lonely time. And people are lonely, and they are often exhausted by many of the things that we see in Psalm 12. By, by the boastful and flattering words that, that seem to be everywhere, on, on the lips of our politicians, on our airwaves, on our social media feeds. And we don't even realize how exhausting it is, but it is. And to be, the church has the privilege to serve 
as a contrast. To be a contrasting counterculture of people that sees the goodness of God, that cares for the poor and the needy, that tunes out the flattering noise that so often engulfs us, instead tunes into the truth and purity of God's word. And that as a result uses our words carefully and generously, revealing the good and true character of God to one another and to the watching world. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this psalm and for the truth and goodness of your word, even as we consider our own words at times, even as we consider the flattering and untrue words we so often hear and are so often drawn to. Lord, help us to be drawn to your word and the truth and goodness and beauty that is there. We thank you that when you say something, it is true and it is effective, and that you have promised that you would send your son, and you did, and you've also promised that he will return one day, and that the already and not yet will come together. Lord, we look forward to that day. Lord, help us to be a community that is shaped by that day as we walk through this life together. We're so grateful, and we're so thankful for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.